Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled. It's where we break down scientific concepts and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Kathleen Masterson. And I'm Paul Boger. Diversity is a buzzword that gets a lot of attention nowadays. You, you sort of can't look anywhere, politics, schools, anything without seeing the importance of that word. And it gets a lot of lip service. But today on the podcast, we're going to look at why diversity is actually so important and the benefits it really gives to our society. And we're going to do that by looking specifically at a lack of diversity in healthcare. When you have a lack of diversity, right? First off, you're increasing the opportunities for discrimination. Um, there are studies that show that if there's a diversity, and that's not just of skin color, that's diversity of socioeconomic background, religious, cultural, um, sexuality, all kinds of different diversity in terms of people's experiences, that groups that are more diverse, or as this one researcher calls, more different from each other, um, are actually more likely to come up with better solutions than uh, you know, a convened panel of experts. I think there's also this, this lack of innovation that occurs. You know, if you're kind of stuck in this one way of thinking for so long, you're only going to stay in that lane. So when we think about diversity in healthcare, there are a zillion different categories that we could look at. Uh, but one of the things that's kind of interesting is that one of the least diverse fields in terms of caregivers in, uh, in healthcare is actually dermatology. 3% of dermatologists in the U.S. are black, 4.2% are Hispanic, and that's far smaller than the percentage of uh, the population that that those groups occupy. It's an incredibly white field. And so we should say that not even, not just practitioners, but when we talk about training in dermatology, that a lot of the textbooks, uh, again, at least in the United States, and a lot of the studies that have been done to look at the way different skin disorders and skin cancers grow have been done on white skin. And so that's, there's sort of two hugely problematic things uh, happening in the field. Right. And, and we're talking about when it comes to those training materials, it's not just the samples. You know, most pictures, texts are of white skin. And it's interesting that when you look at the training that some dermatologists get within their residency, less than a third of chief residents and less than an eighth of program directors reported getting specific rotations in which they gained experience working with patients of color. I spoke with two UNR medical students about this issue. I am Minoj Matthew. I'm a second-year medical student. I'm Arthur Kachatrian. I'm also a second-year medical student here at UNR. Both students stressed there's been a real drive in medicine to improve diversity, not just in increasing representation among doctors, but also in updating research, as historically much medical research in the U.S. was conducted on white male populations. Here's Manoj. Just to kind of add on to that, I think the overarching theme is because of the lack of diversity, um, seeing in actual dermatology physicians, you're going to have an overall worsened quality of care and treatment for those patients of underrepresented minorities. Um, as we were saying, like the data suggests that when a patient is seeing a physician of the same skin color or same group or ethnicity group, um, they actually have like longer doctor visit times, um, which usually correlates to more extensive history taking, um, more extensive physical exam, just a better quality of interaction between the patient and the physician. Manoj says while not all patients care about the race or ethnicity of their doctor, it's incredibly important for patients to trust their doctor. And if there isn't established trust, patients may not visit the doctor until a disease has progressed into something much more serious. I think the most important thing is to have dermatologists that are representing various minorities so that people just have that option. And Arthur says this has real-world impact. 
for example, cutaneous melanoma, which is sort of uh, a, a type of a skin cancer, uh, it's uh, whites have a higher incidence rates uh, of uh, cutaneous melanoma, yet non-white population have a higher mortality rate uh, from it. Did you catch that? For white Americans, if you are diagnosed with melanoma, you have a 90% chance of surviving after five years. If you're an African-American, that number drops to 65% after five years. But we're not just talking about dermatology here. I mean, just there are huge disparities across all of healthcare. Um, African-Americans make up thir- less than 13% of the population in the U.S., but only 6% of the entire medical field. Another stat, African-Americans are less likely to be given effective pain management by their doctor, either because they're prescribed lower or fewer dosages uh, versus their white counterparts, or sometimes, according to research, those disparities may be due to concerns over misuse or uh, an inability to pay for health care or not even recognizing a black patient's pain in the first place. And for many people, there's also the issue of trust. Historically and sometimes ongoing, doctors have treated certain racial groups unfairly or even experimented on them. And that still affects people's attitude toward medical institutions today. We spoke with Dr. Julie Lucero, a UNR professor of community health sciences and the director of Latino research. I asked her where that distrust of doctors comes from. My honest answer I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I think that it stems from the way that people of color have been treated, disenfranchised people have been treated in this country. And, um, you know, it's just a mistrust of I'm not going to go and put myself in a situation where I'm going to be treated like a second-class citizen. I think it's just baked in the cake, as they say. The The structure of a lot of our, of this country, has just put people in a distrustful state. It is, you know, I grew up, um, in, I'm from New Mexico. I grew up in a little town called Española. And um, when I was growing up, I remember hearing all the time from not just my family, but from other people's family, they would say things like, don't go to the doctor, they'll find something wrong with you. So it's this idea, not only that the person that you're going to is going to find something wrong with you, but also that business model, right? Those two things sort of intersecting, where I'm going to have to pay an arm and a leg because this person is going to find something else wrong with me that I didn't even go there for in the first place. And then we also know that within research, so clinical research, that historically there have been trials, you know, things that have happened, uh, unethical research that has happened and that that gets equated with medicine and going to see my medical doctor. So, um, you know, whether or not they're going to take blood from me and where is that blood going to go and am I ever going to see the results of what's happening, right? So those those two things, research, medical research, and then just medical visits get equated with each other. Paul, as you were saying earlier, disparities aren't just related to skin color or race. Here in the U.S., there's also a language barrier, which really affects care. In Nevada alone, there are 230,000 people that primarily speak Spanish, which can be really challenging when they're trying to get medical care. Here in Reno, Northern Nevada Hopes employs bilingual staff, including doctors and medical assistants, so they can serve Spanish-speaking patients. I met with Anna Pina, a medical assistant at the health center, while she conducted patient intake questions with the man uh, before his doctor's appointment. Pero se siente como deprimido que no tiene ganas de hacer nada, que no más quiere estar en la cama 
que está desanimado. She's asking him a standard set of intake questions, including if he's felt depressed or had trouble getting out of bed. So while those might be basic intake questions, just being able to communicate why the patient is visiting the doctor is huge. Even when there aren't bilingual staff, federally funded hospitals are required to have translation services on hand. But for a long time, many non-English speaking residents would have to rely on English speaking relatives, oftentimes their kids, uh, to translate between them and their doctor. Yeah, that's actually something Noemi Gomez knows well. She's a grad student studying social work here at UNR. She says growing up the oldest child of Mexican immigrants, translating was stressful. I was probably, I want to say like fifth or sixth grade. Like when we started, you know, going to the medical um, appointments, I was young. I, I mean, I, from what I remember, I always remember, you know, go, what is, go ask, see what this means, or, you know, looking through an application and, and us filling it out. So I was always like, when I would go to the dentist or to the doctors or even like the starless and my mom needed help, I was like, oh, I hope someone speaks Spanish. So, you know, it takes away that pressure, but you kind of learn to live with the pressure and and you get comfortable with that. Can you think of a situation where it was really tough for you to translate as a kid? I think a lot of the times where it gets tricky is like you don't, you don't, I, being young, like how do you translate a certain term or how do you explain, you know, depression, for example? Like how do you explain that? Or it, because it gets lost and sometimes direct translation is not always the, the right translation. Yeah, it's not accurate. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure, I kept, probably can't think something in the top of my head but, you know, just even recently, a couple years ago, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. And, I mean, I knew nothing really of cancer. And so somehow within the whole process, um, myself and my older cousin ended up being the translators of everything. And I felt so much pressure, even now as an older adult. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. For many other community families, though, that struggle to communicate may lead to additional health disparities. Research suggests that 65% of Hispanic adults are considered to be at basic or below basic level of health literacy. Here's Lucero again. We know that um, immigrants especially, that they don't want to go to the doctor. There's a lot of fear around encountering medical professionals or just bigger organizations, right? So legal, medical, anybody that can ask you about your status. So they're only going to go when they're really sick. And by that point, there's an issue, right? So health literacy hasn't been established. There's fear, there's mistrust. Um, So all of these things are sort of stacked against. And then if you don't speak the language and there's no buddy there that can help interpret, it's not just going into a doctor's office and sitting down with them, right? That's the privileged state if that's all you're having to deal with. In northern Nevada, some of the efforts to address those disparities are taking shape. At UNR, the Community of Bilingual English-Spanish Speakers, or CBES, has been recruiting students from around the area to enter programs designed to get more bilingual professionals in the healthcare industry. Lucero says programs similar to CBES have been instrumental in growing diversity. In STEM research, they are seeing incredible increases in graduate students from diverse backgrounds. And so race, ethnicity, um, those living in poverty, LGBTQ, just the entire gamut of diversity. That's good. I mean, and it's slow. So for Latinos over the last seven years, I think there's been an 8% increase. So it's small, but it's getting there. 
If you have any comments or questions, let us know. You can shoot us an email at feedback at KUNR.org. We also want to thank our partners. Of course, a big thanks to the Desert Research Institute and the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum, both in Reno. They run the Science Distilled Lecture Series that this podcast is based on. The lectures are coming back for another year in 2020, and you can learn more by going to Discovery's website at NVDM. Also want to give a big special thank you to Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez. She did a lot of reporting on diversity and bilingual issues in healthcare earlier this year for KUNR. You can find that at KUNR.org. And I also need to thank the Hitchcock Project for visualizing science. Until next time, I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Kathleen Masterson.